Today, I'm joined by Dr. Oriel Feldman-Hall. She is a professor of psychology at Brown University, where she studies social and effective neuroscience, doing research on morality, pro-social behavior, social decision-making, and how all that is manifested in the brain. Dr. Feldman-Hall, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So how did you first get interested in neuroscience or psychology, whichever one came first? Um, ooh, okay, so we're going way back. Uh, I was college and I was a double major in English literature and history. And you have to take uh, different courses where I went to university. So you have to take like laboratory courses, language courses and so on and so forth. And so I needed to fulfill my lab course, which I was not very excited about. Um, and I thought, okay, instead of taking, you know, chemistry or bio, I'll take neuroscience. And that first class, I absolutely loved. And it felt hard for neuroscience. It was really like exciting for me. And so I started taking other classes and I realized pretty quickly that I was very passionate about the topic. And so I ended up switching one of my majors, um, history to uh, to neuroscience or biopsychology as it's called. Um, and in college, I also ended up doing some bench work um, later on more towards, I think in between my junior and senior year, although I can't quite remember. Um, and when I did bench research, I was like, I'm never gonna be a neuroscientist. This is so isolating and so um, hard. And the work that I'm doing is feels so incremental. I was working in an ALS lab at, at Harvard, um, working on a mouse model. Um, and so I decided not to pursue neuroscience after I graduated. Um, but after going out into the real world, I realized that I didn't really like that either. So I had some other jobs. Um, I worked um, in politics on Capitol Hill uh, in the Senate, and uh, I wanted to come back into academia. So I thought, okay, I'll apply for my PhD. Um, I wasn't actually sure whether I wanted to do a PhD or go back or go to medical school. And I said, okay, um, I'm going to apply uh, to both and see what I get into. And I and I ended up applying for PhD programs first because of the timeline, and I got in. And so that's uh, basically what <laughs> dictated my career. It was very uh, luck oriented and not nearly as um, thoughtful as some of you know, my students are uh, now as I think about going to grad school. Did your background in English literature influence your decision to, to study morality and pro-social behavior and stuff like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe because it definitely shaped you know, what I was thinking about and what I was reading um, at the time and what I had been doing before and what I have been doing since. So it basically shaped, you know, who I am as a person in some ways. But I think, you know, more precisely, when I was applying for my PhD programs, um, when you apply to Cambridge or Oxford, you, I, I got my PhD at Cambridge, you actually have to write a proposal about what you want to study. And I sat down to write that. And so what I did is I went to PubMed and I spent the weekend basically, you know, reading papers, lots and lots of papers. Um, and the, the papers that were really interesting to me became a smaller and smaller paper. It was, it was things about, you know, morality. And so what I wrote my proposal on is, you know, in some ways, more or less what I'm still studying today. Mm -hmm. And what was, what was the proposal? What, what did you actually end up doing in grad school? The proposal was to study a model of morality that mirrored the tensions that we see in the real world and to map uh, what was happening in the brain when we made those types of decisions. And I wanted to, I guess the one thing I didn't do in grad school that I had put in my proposal is I also wanted to work on lesion populations to see if you um, ablate part of the brain, what would be the contributions um, to uh, a moral choice. For example, let's say um, you have a lesion in the OFC or the amygdala, what would that mean for moral decision making? Which I did not do in grad school because that's really hard research to do. Mm -hmm. So is, is moral decision making like its own domain or is it really just a form of complex decision making and it's like you're, you're taking into account how is this gonna affect me socially? Like, 
Um, I think that question could be answered by, you know, in different ways, depending on who, who you asked it to. Um, I think moral decision-making is a field now because of how many people study moral decision-making. I think that there, um, it's perhaps a subfield of social cognition. So I would argue now that I study social cognition more broadly. It's not just um, narrowly focused on, on morality, but in my PhD at that time, it was uh, very focused on uh, the moral dynamics uh, that we engage with in our, I guess, everyday lives. We're trying to do something to that, to that end. Mm -hmm. And how did that, that after your PhD, what, um, what type of work did you start doing? How did that transition? Um, let's see. So I went to work uh, with Liz Phelps uh, for my postdoc, and I also had second mentorship by Paul Glimsher. And neither one of them studies uh, social decision-making and certainly not morality in the strictest term. They're not social psychologists. Um, Liz did or is interested in neuroeconomics and social decision-making broadly. Um, but I was surrounded by people who did nothing even remotely like what I was interested in. So, you know, like your conditioning um, and there was some monkey physiology work and so forth um, in Paul's lab. So I got exposed to a whole host of different um, methods and ideas and uh, hypotheses and they pretty much broadened the types of questions that I was interested in and how I looked at the questions that I had been interested in. And so it was that sort of melting pot of many, of many different people doing um, different things that I think started to shape uh, the direction of what I was um, looking at and what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. What are some examples of those types of questions? Um, that I was, that I got interested in my postdoc? Yeah. Um, so, it, we used to sit in this uh, postdoc tent at NYU, and there was a whole bunch of us. And uh, you know, things would like come to mind, and somebody would like, you know, lean over and say something. Or we would be in lab meetings, and somebody might be presenting on you know, peer conditioning or memory study, and somebody else who was interested, um, you know, neuroeconomics might say, "Well, have you ever thought about it in in X uh, domain or something else?" So there was a lot of ideas floating around from different places. And I think one example of um, a synergy between me and um, one of my colleagues, Joey Dunsmore, what, who, who, studied fear, who studies fear conditioning, is we started talking about, you know, this idea of generalization, stimulus generalization, and how that might happen in the social domain. And he um, had studied this in humans, but had, you know, has very deep knowledge about a whole host of different species of how stimulus generalization works. And so we thought about ways of testing it in the social domain. It came up ultimately in the domain of trust um, and changing uh, the, uh, what the perceived trustworthiness of the people that you would encounter in, let's say, an economic trust game. Um, and it was really, uh, that work was really informed by how, you know, he was thinking about uh, stimulus generalization in a much more basic domain, um, you know, as early on as like, you know, pigeons pecking at different colors of blue to get food and how that would uh, generalize um, across the color spectrum um, to get that reward. It seems like there's a huge amount of overlap between like social decision-making work and neuroeconomics. Is that, does that have something to do with the way you have to design the studies? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I guess, you know, I, the way that I see it is that social decision-making borrows or social cognition borrows from lots of different fields. And I think there's a lot of power in, you know, game theory models because those models try to reflect the tensions that happen between interacting people. And so I think that can be very powerful because not only does it try to bring attention to the outside world into the lab, but there's also a level of precision in modeling those types of choices. So you give certain boundary conditions to whatever the test bed might be. Um, and then you place a monetary um, measurement on uh, what people are willing to do to, let's say, reject an unfair offer. So how much is it worth it to somebody to reject and how much money are they willing to give up? And that helps to take a lot of the stuff that we study in the social world into a more 
precise domain by giving it some sort of metric that we can all understand, in this case, money. It seems like game theory tries to model humans as like these rational agents that do their best to to maximize reward and avoid punishment. But then we're, we're irrational at times, especially when, when it comes to emotion. I know you've done some research looking at how emotion influences decision making, right? Yeah, so I'm not a fan of using the words rational and irrational to, <laughs> in any, to, to uh, describe any choice, in part because I think mm-hmm. that they mislead people to think that there's something important in ra- quote unquote rationality or quote unquote irrationality. And especially when it comes to emotions, if you're an economist, you might say that you know emotions lead people to do quote unquote irrational things. But my argument would be that emotions are incredibly powerful um, signals to orient you to behave in adaptive and actually optimal ways. Um, even if they seem irrational because you're giving up money, that's not necessarily playing the long game um, of building a reputation or investing in a long-term relationship, which might come at a cost initially, but bear out fruits later on. Mm-hmm. How do you study that in, when you're doing neuroimaging research? Is it like people are inside the brain scanner and then you're just asking them what they're feeling? Or is it like you're looking at specific activations and inferring the emotion? Um, you could do both. Um, you know, we actually have a, we have some work coming out, uh, from our lab, uh, led by one of my graduate students, uh, Joey Dunsmore, where, you know, he's taken this incredibly novel approach, or I think it's novel approach to quantifying emotion. Um, and there's a, there's, you know, actually a number of studies now, um, in which he does this, but do you want me to get into the science yet? Yeah, sure. Okay, um, where he basically um, tries to map what we call an emotion prediction error during uh, an economic game. So the way that um, he does this is he gives people this effective grid. It's you know, a simple circumplex where there's two dimensions. There's an arousal dimension and there's a balance dimension. And that effective grid is a 500 by 500 pixelated grid. So it's very granular. And anywhere you click in the grid, would be indicated by x y coordinate in that 500 pixelated dimension so you get certain coordinates if you if you click wherever you are so you're playing an economic game let's say the ultimatum game so the ultimatum game is um, a game that assesses how you value punishment um, so if you and i are playing this game um, and i'm given ten dollars and i can split the money however i would like with you the rules of the game are this if you, if I, if I split the money and you reject whatever offer, if you, neither one of us gets the money, if you accept it, both of us get the money. So I have to figure out on my end, what amount, the minimum amount that you're willing to accept, because otherwise, you know, it's a hazard of me not getting any money. You, of course, wouldn't get any money either if you reject mm-hmm. it. So as the responder, as the person who can decide whether to reject or accept the offer, um, what we look at is how an unfair offer, let's say for me, if I give you $1, how that makes you feel compared to what you expect to feel when you get that offer. So using this effective grid, this highly pixelated effective grid, we first ask you um, how you're going to feel if you get whatever offer you think you're going to get. I make the offer to you, it's an unfair offer. I give you one cent, we ask you to now, remake uh, or make again uh, your effective feeling on this grid. And what we can do is we can take the coordinates from how you expect it to feel versus how you actually feel once you get the offer. And we can simply subtract them from one another and we can get this numeric um, uh, number in this XY grid uh, along the valence and um, arousal dimensions that indicates um, how you feel. So this is like a sense of an emotional prediction error. We can compare mm-hmm. it to a reward prediction error, how much you thought you're going to get from the offer and how much I actually ended up giving you. Um, and so we can hit these reward um, prediction errors against these emotion prediction errors to see what ultimately um, is a better predictor of decisions to punish or to defect or to cooperate or whatever it might be. And we see that in this case, emotion prediction errors are uh, far more potent in their ability to predict decisions to punish as well as other uh, types of decisions um, than reward prediction errors. Mm-hmm. Are people actually good at predicting their, uh, er, or quantifying what they're feeling? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's an empirical question because there's 
um, no way to, let's say, disprove what people are reporting. So the report of an emotion is a subjective experience. So that might diverge from a physiological experience. So if you were to um, gather skin conductive response as an arousal measure, um, there might not be a one-to-one -one mapping with how introspective a person is about the physiological arousal they might have. Um, we have yet to do that study, although I think it is an interesting study. Um, but uh, but that's there's no way to prove or disprove the questions that they just asked. Uh huh. So we're getting into like philosophical questions there. But it, it it seems like the more overlap there is, whether that whether that's in terms of studies being replicated or like findings that that are stable cross culturally, you you kind of get at something more real and and. Well, it seems like we have that with emotion, right? Because there's there's like primary emotions that most people experience. But then uh, I know Jonathan Haidt has also tried to do that with morality, with his moral foundations theory. Is what do you think of that? Do do you is that what you use, or do you define it some, uh, differently? When you say it, do you mean moral foundations theory? When you when you're defining um, moral values in your research, is that is that has that become like the gold standard or? Uh, no. no, so um, we don't use moral foundations uh, for a few reasons. One, I don't think there's, um, we have other ways of looking at, you know, moral decision-making and the moral foundation theory literature, it's not about moral decision-making per se, it's just about quantifying what people care about um, in the moral domain. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I think about moral foundations is it's, it's kind of like, how do you want to cut the cake? you can keep cutting it into constituent parts until each piece becomes like thinner and thinner and thinner. And then you have this like really, really well-described um, moral landscape. But when you cut it so thinly, then um, how do each one of those constituent parts generalize, let's say to other cultures or to other types of moral phenomena and so forth. And so I, as I see it, that's not such a useful practice. Right, like what's better is to try to, you know, take um, uh, the like some defining features that goes across every sort of moral question or moral dilemma that we might find ourselves. Pick what those two dimensions or three dimensions might be, um, and that would also translate um, across cultures and to and to use those and use those tensions and manipulate those tensions um, within uh, a moral sphere. So. My particular, um, you know, thoughts on this is that harm, um, harm aversion, and fairness are like two pillars of uh, what go into almost every type of, of moral decision. Mm -hmm. um, if, if they had to be distilled down to something a little bit smaller than what comes out of moral foundations, mm -hmm. and that sounds similar again to to sort of the the economics view of like harm and reward. So how how is it different? Like what's the unique moral flair that's added to it? Um, I would say that neuroeconomics is is very useful for studying morality. I think it's a it's a great tool because I think a lot of the issues that one studies in the field of neuroeconomics uh, are exactly about the moral tensions uh, that we find ourselves in when we're you know thinking about how to make an equal distribution about something or who to donate to or how many people to donate to and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like their moral decisions are easier when it's like when it's like the obvious best decision for, for everyone. But then there's there's sort of moral de decisions that require sacrifice. So have you looked at that at all? Yeah, so uh, uh, in some of the work uh, that came out of my PhD, we set up this task, um, this is a while ago now, but we set up this task, which we call the pain versus gain paradigm. And in this task, we were looking at basically self-sacrifice, in this case, uh, monetary sacrifice uh, against harm to another. So the, the task was as follows. You, you came into the lab um, and you were picked to be the decider which was rigged, of course. Um, and then there was another person who was going to be the receiver. And that person was uh, going to get a series of shots. And as the decider, you're given a sum of money. We did this in the UK. Um, so we gave them 20 pounds. And we said, OK, this money is yours to keep now. 
but you can spend some of this money or all of this money to preserve the welfare of this other person called the receiver who is you know sitting in the room right ahead of them at the time. Um, and we take the two people, the receiver is actually a confederate, uh, one of my colleagues, um, Davey, who is such a sport, uh, going through this rigmarole time and time again, getting so many electric shocks. We take them down to the testing labs, um, we put them in separate rooms, um, and where the confederate the receiver is, there's like a camera and you can see everything that's happening in that room. So like as the electric shocks get administered, as the decider who's the true participant, they can see everything that's happening when they decide to um, uh, let's say keep the money in a shock is administered, they can see that unfolding. And so what they have to do, they have to decide over 20 trials is whether to keep a pound or a portion of a pound. Um, and if they do, that means that an electric shock or a very high electric shock uh, will be administered to baby. And if they uh, decided um, to give up the money or to give up even some of the money, they could attenuate the electric shock um, or eliminate it altogether if they give up the full pound. And so they have mm -hmm. to do this multiple times. And they're told at the end of the experiment that whatever money they have left over of that 20 will get multiplied up to 10 times. So, you know, if you're a university student, the, the promise or the possibility rather of 200 pounds, which is about, I don't know, three to $400, uh, depending on when it is, um, can be quite enticing. And so people, you know, most people, every person that we tested, about 180 people, every person but one um, kept a portion of the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So one person was willing to, to give up the whole sum of it. That's right. Uh-huh. And is it is it like a trick where you actually reward the, the person who gave it up after or do they really walk out with nothing? They walk out with nothing. <laughs> uh-huh. And the shocks are fake, right? So so your colleague is pre pretending no, 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 to be shocked. The shocks are real. Wow. That's <laughs> that's a <laughs> sacrifice of its own. I I should say this. The shocks are real, but they're not in real time. So uh -huh. in order to standardize um, Davy's emotional reactions to getting the, the shocks, which, you know, after he received hundreds of shocks, he habituated to them. Um, so we had to like amplify them quite a bit um, over time. But as we were um, giving him the shock, we recorded every single shock that we gave him. And then we had those videos of him getting the shocks, um, tested on the separate group of participants so that we could classify high shocks all into one group and medium shocks and low shocks and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they were real, but they were not in real time. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Cause I, I wonder how many people chose to keep the money cause they thought it was fake. Like I probably would have thought, Oh no, they're not actually going to get shocked. They're just testing my psychology. <laughs> uh, but yeah. I mean, we, yeah, that's something we were very um, aware of. And so we did, a, you know, we had a, this whole, you know, a song and dance um, of uh, essentially deceiving the participants. So they met Davey in real time, people were signing paperwork. Um, you know, they could see the shocks unfolding um, on uh, the camera in front of them. Um, they also got a low level shock so they could experience it themselves. They could feel that it was, uh, the shock was indeed real. And then of course, at the end of it, we debrief our subjects and we asked them, um, in these coy ways uh, to figure out whether they had any disbelief about whether the shocks were real. Um, and we had some situations where people became quite angry with us when we found out that they were not real because they were like, I could have made so much more money. Why didn't you tell me? And so on and so forth. So. Yeah. Was this all behavioral work or were you also looking at their brains? We, yeah, we did both. Um, we, we looked at what was happening in the brain as people made these decisions and we started um, just doing it behaviorally. So to make sure that we, the paradigm worked because we weren't even sure if the, initially, you know, one reason that we endowed our subjects with 20 pounds um, at, the, at the start was because we didn't actually think that people were going to um, prioritize the money over their welfare. So we were worried about this tension that they're gonna come in, they're gonna give up the money. And so we were like, okay, one way to get people to keep the money even more is to actually give them the money, make it super tangible, put it on the desk in front of them. Um, and then they won't wanna give it up. Because um, we were quite worried that we wouldn't get anybody to do that. Mm -hmm, that makes sense. So, were, were the brain findings was was that novel? Was is there like a specific area that that has to do with with not just let's say reward and punishment, but but in the social sense? Yeah, you know, so not just in this paradigm, but in some of uh, the other work that we've done since we juxtapose the social versus the non-social. In this particular case, we had an imaginary condition. 
so that we could look at what people um, would do hypothetically versus what they would do in reality. And you do find um, differences at the neural level between like a decision made for real versus one that you think that you're making that does not actually have consequences, which, you know, Josh Green in 2001 had this, you know, elegant set of studies uh, where he used uh, the trolley dilemma. I don't know if you're um, aware. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, of the trolley dilemma, but he basically brought philosophy right into the scanner and he asked um, people these incredible set of questions um, like from a philosophical uh, perspective of what would you do when you're confronted with, you know, saving five lives versus killing um, one other person. Um, and part of the work, which is very inspired by Josh's work, um, was to show that there is not necessarily a one-to-one -one mapping with what we think we're going to do and the decisions we think we'll make um, compared to what happens uh, when we actually face those decisions. Mm -hmm. That's a, a good place to bring up this idea of like, whether moral values are absolute or not. So, so some people, for example, might say killing someone is completely wrong all the time, no matter what. And then other people, if they're presented with a trolley problem, which is like, would you kill one person to save a million others for a million? Most people probably would say yes. Yeah, so I don't believe that uh, moral values are absolute. I think there's there's really good evidence that they're contextualized and that depending on the environment that one finds themselves in, they can be changed quite quickly. Um, some, some other work that uh, from, our, from our lab, one of my uh, students, Jay Young Sun, um, showed that basically being in the presence of a group can change your willingness to punish. So you might not be someone who really wants to punish at all, but if you see other people punishing then you come to desire that, um, that behavior itself. You will come to want to punish um, as well. And so, I mean, there's, you know, conformity is a very powerful thing. And there's a lot of evidence or a lot of research um, in other domains. Like, for example, if, you know, a group of people says, oh, that person's really attractive, you yourself be like, oh, yes, they are attractive and change your own ratings of how attractive that person is. Um, the stakes are low in those types of situations, right? You know, it's not, it's not staked on moral grounds. It's not something that um, is held to be dear, which are, you know, what our moral beliefs are um, supposed to be privileged in that sense. But we don't find basically very little evidence um, that, uh, you know, moral values are stable. Mm -hmm. And then, so for a small minority of people, they might be, I guess, like, I guess Immanuel Kant might be the extreme example who, so do you know of any research looking at, looking at people with I guess, stronger, stronger, more fixed values? Like, is there anything different about their brains or the way they're processing these questions? Um, the work comes readily to mind is in the political sphere. And so when you put people who believe, you know, one set of moral values in front of another person who believes a different set of moral values, those people usually become more entrenched in their political values that usually have moral tethering. Um, there, I think there's the context of that is that, you know, when you're confronted with someone who doesn't share your political beliefs, you want to hold on more strongly to what you believe is right or is wrong. Um, and so there is becomes this tension with that. Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit, I mean, it's, in that sense, it's, it's complicated because if you weren't, if you didn't frame it in political terms, would people come to all become entrenched in that same way or hold those beliefs even more firmly? Um, mm -hmm. and the answer is, I'm not sure. Uh -huh. Are you talking about Jonas Kaplan from USC? Um, possibly. I don't remember the, the authors off the top of my head. Uh -huh. He was my very first guest on this podcast, and we talked about some of his work look, looking at, at that type of thing. So um, how, how people respond differently to either political or religious questions as opposed to like, standard questions and it seems like they're more invested and it's either it's either it has to do with morality or maybe it's like more of an emotional response that ties them that makes them respond more strongly to those topics yeah. right so what why is that why are there certain topics that people are that respond a lot more strongly to um <laughs> and i'm speaking from like a scientific standpoint if you if you know I'm not saying like why do you think someone prefers x over y yeah I mean it 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 
comes down to emotion. I, I, I think, I mean, emotion, again, this is like the answer is that the emotional signaling is, you know, an important part of, of this process. But, you know, if someone holds a belief very firmly, you know, as you just mentioned, it part has to do with the emotional salience of what that um, belief conjures up for them. And so any um, um, deviation or people who don't believe in that can create an emotional fail. So there's this whole idea of effective polarization. And that's one of the, the reasons people think that or that is supposed to drive why people you know, have these polarized beliefs that end up on two sides of the spectrum is in part because of the power of the emotional expression that gets linked with those beliefs um, when they get, you know, when people, you know, directly contradict them. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question behind that of like, why do certain things invoke stronger emotions than others? Or maybe that's the same question. Why do certain things invoke stronger emotions? Oof. I mean, that's a, that's a, a tough question that maybe is coming full circle to, you know, what are the moral foundations? What are the things that we end up uh -huh. caring about? And I'm, and in some ways, I don't mean to be dodging the question, but the truth is, you know, I'm not entirely sure. And I also think it's, um, a chicken and egg story what comes first yeah okay so we should we should uh flip the switch and talk about like the most uh well validated findings in in this realm that you know of and we could also talk about altruism because that's that's sort of related to to this social behavior and morality but but it's sort of its own thing okay so which one do you want to start with let's 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 talk about altruism and then we could close talking about like everything that's that's very well established so what, 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 um, what should we talk about with altruism? Well, let, let's talk about how you define it in your research and how it's different from what we've been talking about so far. So um, I would define altruism as a person's willingness to give up something that is beneficial to them in order to help another person. And so, mm -hmm. and so that was actually one of the ways that we thought about studying altruism, which falls under the hood of morality um, with this pain versus pain paradigm. Um, there's different flavors of altruism, right? So you don't necessarily have to have it be staked on, you know, monetary or harm grounds. Um, and in the animal kingdom, you know, the altruism can look like a lot of different ways. Um, but when it comes to humans interacting with other humans, altruism, you know, has the, the quality of, you know, do I care about my own benefit, whether that be my time, my happiness, or whatever, however you want to quantify it compared to the time, the money, the happiness, the welfare of somebody else that you're interacting with. So, you know, like fidelity would also fit in in the broadest um, sense under this idea of altruism. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, these are really hard things to study in the lab, right? So, one of the things that's uh, difficult about studying morality is figuring out sort of clever proxies or analogs for what happens in the real world when we see people like deviate from let's say normative behavior um, and getting them to do it you know in the lab with people watching them knowing that they're like in a psychological study um, so you know half the battle I think is trying to figure out how to study this stuff these like really thorny issues and get people to do stuff that they wouldn't normally do with other people watching um, in a mm -hmm. laboratory environment. Right. Oh, I had a question, but I forgot it. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk more about, about the methodology with, with trying to get people to do certain things without knowing that that's what you want them to do. Yeah. Yeah, we, we're masterminds of that. <laughs> we do that a lot of my lab. Um, so, I don't know, this reaches back, like, you know, all the way back to some of like the oldest psychology studies, um, social psychology studies. Uh, you know, the, the thing is people are really savvy now. So, um, you know, Milgram, everybody knows about Milgram and the Zimbardo's uh, uh, prison study. Um, and so we have to be very careful about planning our studies because a lot of people know about social psychology research. And even if they don't know, let's say the specifics of certain things, um, the people who come into the lab are always, you know, thinking that we're trying to, you know, pull the wool over their eyes, which in many cases we are. 
Um, but they're very, they're very attuned to that. Um, so there's all sorts of things um, that we try to do. Um, and this is especially true when we're running studies online, which of course, like through the pandemic has become paramount because we weren't able, certainly not in the beginning, to run studies in the lab. Um, so you have to get people on the internet to think that they're engaging with other people on the internet in real time, um, thinking that they're you know, doing what they're doing. In some cases, we do do studies like that. So you have like, you know, people wait until enough people enter the room and then there's 10 people and they can all collectively play with one another. Um, putting those paradigms together is really hard um, and takes a lot of like technological savvy savviness. Um, so what we do is, you know, we have these like tricks of the trade where we can, you know, get your internet ID, your MTurker ID, your prolific ID and have them put it into like a system and it's, you know, put onto the screen and they can pick their avatar and then they're told that there's this other MTurker and there's all these tricks that we do to get people to think that they're, um, I don't want to let them all out of the bag here, but um, to make to make them believe that they're playing with other people in real time on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. So the question, the question that I forgot had to do with altruism, and it's it's sort of more of a philosophical question, but it's like, does true altruism really exist? Because you can define it as making a sacrifice for some some greater good or for someone else's um, benefit. But then you could also make an argument that maybe they're what they're doing is in fact gonna selfishly aid them in the long term. So it's more like a, whether it's a calculated process versus like this genuine altruistic process. Yeah, so you're certainly not the first person to have asked me this. And I guess my response to this is, in some ways, is it actually an interesting question of whether there's genuine altruism or not? Like, does it matter if there's this pure altruistic sense that we hold in, in all of us, um, or whether it's tainted by the fact that, let's say, we feel good by helping somebody else? And yeah, you're right. On, on maybe in philosophical terms, there is something interesting about that. Um, and maybe you could argue that that would lead to, let's say, two different types of behaviors. But when it comes down to, you know, studying real people in real time and, you know, real interacting minds, um, I don't know how much mileage there is in saying, okay, well, this person made a decision out of like this pure altruistic, you know, um, choice versus this person did it because they wanted to be lauded by their community. Um, if there were very divergent behavioral profiles associated with each, um, then I think it would become a really interesting psychological question. Um, but I also think it's really hard to figure out whether a decision is made from a purely altruistic sense. Like, I, I wouldn't really know how to do that and, um, and, and to basically control out everything other than that, like, hedonically good feeling that you might get. From, from helping somebody else. Right, because these are all subjective issues. But then, but then I guess the hallmark of social psychology is that when enough, when you have enough subjective things and when there's overlap, then it starts to be just like true of humans generally, or at least that's the hope, right? Yeah, so I mean, if, if that's what we're trying to understand, whether people do have, if, whether there's a portion of people who do, let's say have a pure altruistic sense or you know, behave in ways that are purely altruistic, I don't think there's good evidence for that, right? Like, I, I don't, I think that people, you know, there's always a self, a self quote unquote selfish component um, to the type of decisions we make, even if it's just, I'm doing it because I feel good. I'm being empathic, I'm being kind, I'm helping another person because I feel good about doing that. Um, I think that is a big component of altruism. So I don't, I'm not sure that pure altruism at the human level exists. Although I'm happy to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you want to take an evolutionary perspective to it, you could say, why do we even feel good about that? And the answer might be something like, well, if this was the opt the altruistic solution that helped us survive, maybe over over like long spans of time, we started feeling good about the, the good options. Yeah. 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 So this this would be a good place to talk about um basically every everything that or well, we don't have time for that, but some of the major findings that you've made that are well validated and that you're currently expanding on. So like what they are and then what, what you're currently working on to, to expand upon them. Oh gosh. Um, okay. Well validated. So or just the most interesting, but I, but I say well validated just because it's like to try and get a sense of where this field is going. So one of the, the findings that, is the most, let's say, well-validated that has 
come out of the lab, other than the fact that people are selfish um, and behave in selfish ways, um, is the idea that uh, people are not routinely seeking out punishment when they're faced with someone who's behaved um, poorly. So, um, you know, in a series of studies, I think we probably tested, um, oh God, thousands of people at this point, maybe even around 5,000 people, um, both in the lab and online. What we find is that if you are the victim of a moral um, violation, so let's say someone treats you unfairly, you as the victim don't desire to punish the person who treated you poorly. The desire to punish um, comes much more strongly when you're a third party witnessing somebody behave, let's say unfairly to another person. If you as that third party are able to make a decision about whether that person should be, the, the, the perpetrator should be given a punishment, then you desire punishment. So there's this disconnect between basically being a victim of a crime and wanting to punish and being, let's say, a third party, party perpetrator and wanting to punish the person, mm -hmm. the perpetrator. That's very um, interesting. So what does the victim think then? Do you, have, do you ask follow-up questions of like, okay, if you don't want to punish them, what are you feeling? Yeah, yeah. So we have. So um, for the most part, what it seems like is that people are taking the moral high ground as the victim. Um, they might be doing that for different reasons. Um, one, they might be wanting to teach her example. That's what some people say. Um, another, uh, and so they, yeah, they want to teach her example. Another says that they, you know, other, another group of people will say that they basically want to curtail the negative social choices that are being made to someone acted poorly. Um, I don't want to keep that as, you know, this, this vengeful cycle going on and on. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to basically stop it in its tracks. Um, and uh, I guess a third group of people would say that um, they basically have the power to, you know, turn the other cheek, that it's not important, it's not so important to, you know, be retributive. And then the people who are the third party, you know, individuals who are making these decisions to punish are the ones who say, it's not up to me to forgive. Like it's my, in fact, not only is it not up to me to forgive, but it's my moral obligation because the law of the land in let's say this country, but also in many Western countries is that someone who does something that's wrong, who does a moral violation should be punished. And so because I'm not the victim, it's not up to me to disregard that social normative behavior. And in fact, um, people who are third parties and who disregard that, meaning that they don't punish, um, are seen as morally inferior to those who are third parties who do punish. Mm -hmm. And how much of this desire for punishment is like, I have a responsibility to punish as opposed to more just this abstract desire for, let's say, the government or for karma to, to make things right? Well, I would argue that if it was karma or something like that to make things right, then even the victim should be wanting to punish, right? Because that right. should, you know, be the the principle that even a victim would be um, working under. I think what it sort of calls attention to is that there's a disconnect between what the government does and what the person who is the victim of the crime actually wants, and whether there should be more crosstalk between victims of crimes and those who are, you know, deciding the, um, the level of punishment on the perpetrator. Because if we care about what the victim wants, then there should be more communication about what happens in the wake of crime. Mm -hmm. So this, this was uh, a surprise, right? Did you expect the, the victims to, to be the ones, the stronger? No, I mean, we definitely thought there were going to be differences between you know, a victim in a third party, but we didn't think, we actually thought it was going to be the reverse of that. And so, you know, going into um, setting up a paradigm and asking questions, um, we, the reason we had these, you know, the victim versus the third party is because we thought that the, that the victims would be like these super punitive people and that the third parties would be the ones to turn the other cheek. And it was the exact opposite of what we found. And, and in all honesty, the number at which the 67% of, of, of victims who don't punish is in every single paradigm that we've run, every single, whether it's online or in the lab, with like we've run it even in the really big economics lab with, you know, 30 people at once playing with each other. So you can see the other people, they don't know who they're, like, they don't know who they're being paired up with, but they can see that all their choices are happening in real time. 
And it doesn't matter what the context is, you still get about 67% of victims saying like, I will not punish uh, the perpetrator. So it's like an incredibly um, consistent number um, that we get. So that's perhaps our most well-validated finding. Mm -hmm. Are there like personality differences between the, the types of people that, that want to punish and not? Um, probably. <laughs> I, I would imagine, I would imagine that there are, I don't know what they are though. We haven't done a deep dive on uh, individual um, differences, but, mm -hmm. but yeah. I there are. Yeah. So maybe that's one of the, the future next steps. What about, what about you personally? What uh, projects have you got planned for the next few years? Um, sure. So I guess one of the things that we're looking at very actively right now is the idea that cognitive maps in the Tolman sense um, act as a representational format for how we encode social networks. So um, this is uh, work uh, led by one of my graduate students, Jay. And what he's doing right now is he has um, all of these, you know, it, artificial, although we're also actually about to do it in real social networks, I'll just tell you about the artificial networks. We basically create these artificial networks. So um, let's say we have a group of 20 people and all of those people are connected with other people within that group. And so you get this graph-like representation um, between um, uh, all the relationships of the people. And the idea is whether a cognitive map, so should I say what a cognitive map is for this audience? Sure. Okay. So a cognitive map is basically a representation of how things are related to one another. So, um, you know, this, you know, comes back all the way to when Tolman was studying how rats run through a maze and found out that even in like these unrewarded experiences, if a rat runs through a maze and experiences all the little T's and the X's and the arms of the maze um, through enough exploration, they will represent uh, what that map is in even in ways where let's say um, there's um, you know a wall is put up in the maze so they can't get um, through that particular arm the rat will very quickly figure out that they can take another route because they have a representation called the cognitive map that shows um, all the relationships um, in space and so this idea of cognitive maps 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 really well um, onto this onto space. But only in the last like couple of years have people started to take this idea of a cognitive map and introduced it to other more abstract phenomena. In particular, um, the last year or two, we've seen um, some work come out that showed that cognitive maps also extend to social phenomena. Um, so in this work that we're looking at, uh, what we've, you know, this paper is actually about to come out. Um, what we found is that people do use cognitive maps to represent social networks and they do it in a kind of interesting space so one way to represent uh, um, how people are connected with one another is not necessarily on a relationship between let's say tom and sally tom and sally have a relationship and sally and brian have a relationship but to use features of tom of sally of brian let's say that they you know are both in the chess club or they're both physicists or whatever. And they can use those features to create what are called, let's say, cognitive maps of social features. And that allows people to make inferences about the net, about parts of the network that they have no knowledge of. So if you, like, let's say in any social network, like let's say you have your high school friends, your college friends, your work friends, whatever it might be, um, you have good knowledge about some of that network of who is connected to who and how deep that relationship is, but you certainly don't have access to all, um, all of the network, right? There's going to be holes or gaps in your knowledge. And so you can use these um, cognitive maps of social features to fill in those gaps, to figure out how people in the network that you don't know who necessarily might be connected, you can make inferences about them if you use these features like knowing who likes chess um, or, you know, who goes on long bike rides or whatever it might be. Uh-huh. So is the map, like, the, the way you're you're imagining these social rankings, like Tom is better than Sally at chess and Sally is more popular than Tom in school and, and like, all these different little things, and is that the type of map? Yeah, so the way that we've tested it is not necessarily in a, in a hierarchical way um, in, this, in the sense that people are ranked uh, within the social network, 
but rather, you know, individuals that share some common property, whether it be like cycling enthusiasts or chemists or, or what have you. Um, we have that is a social the social feature that defines how the map is built. The map is built from that social feature, like a chess a chess map um, or a biking map or so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So then the last part you mentioned like filling in the blanks is that something like maybe you know someone likes basketball and football and baseball but you don't know if they like lacrosse but you say they probably do because they're a sporty person and then you say they probably don't like chess because well they're a sporty person is it is it like that well the way that we tested it um in these set of experiments is we would say okay there's a transfer student coming into this and this network and you know that um this transfer network you know natalia it likes chess who is she going to be friends with? And you can make really good inferences based on that one piece of knowledge that she likes stress of who she's going to be friends with based on your cognitive map, uh, your, your checks cognitive map. Uh -huh. That makes sense. So is, is this a completely new area or is it like we have well-validated findings of, of whatever the, the social cognitive processes are, but we don't know how it works in the brain and that's what you're bringing to the table? Um, I, I would say that the, the idea that cognitive maps are a representational format for social networks has yet to be, um, to be shown and that this is the first work that shows that and it gives a mechanistic account of how we build those social cognitive maps. That's very cool. Okay, so what would be, what would be the major implication of that? It's, well, it sounds like you're already, you're already showing that that's the case, but what would it do to change the field? Um, <laughs> uh, for us, it's, a, it's an exciting place because, you know, we have a whole bunch of studies that we have planned to sort of dig deep in this domain, including bringing it to real social networks. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with studying it this type of thing with real social networks is that learning happens outside the lab. So you cannot quantify learning in an artificial network by you know, giving people like a full set of individuals who are connected to one another and having them like learn from, from scratch um, a social network. Um, one way that we're doing this is we're, we're, we're gonna follow a cohort of incoming freshmen at Brown University who have yet to establish a social network. So that's gonna be like our ground zero, right? They have no connections, mm -hmm. um, they're coming to Brown, they're about to build their social network and we're gonna follow them over time as they build their social network and as the social network critically changes um, and to see whether cognitive maps basically allow for affordances of how you navigate through your network, for example, understanding how gossip transmits mm -hmm. through the network, um, even when the network changes, let's say when there's a relationship that's been broken because the friendship's ended um, or a new relationship that's been created um, and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Oriel, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.